pretty wild to think about. Our Jewish friends, those are some partners with us at One for Israel, the Arab-speaking community, Gentiles there, all singing out that glorious hymn we love right in front of the well, in front of the tomb that many, I happen to be in that camp, uh, would have been Jesus' tomb 2,000 years ago. It's pretty phenomenal. It's almost as if the Bible is actually coming true to see those things, to see those things. If you're like me, one of the most discouraging things uh, when out in pop culture, your friends, your neighbors, people you spend time with, play golf with, play tennis with, go out to dinner with, travel with, or just see them outside pushing back in the, uh, you know, their travel buckets with trash in them, you know, uh, and say hello in the morning. The, the discouragement is, is that so few people understand the magnitude of what is being unfolded in our own day. Not only that Jesus came, which was phenomenal, and there's plenty of, there's plenty of support for that archaeologically and extant manuscripts and all that. We know Jesus existed both inside and outside the, the manuscripts that we have. And they're well-preserved and they are profound. Jesus did live, we know that. And he did die under Pontius Pilate. And it was claimed by many of his followers, some 500 saw him after his resurrection, according to Matthew, that he was raised from the dead and many saw him ascend into the right hand of the Father. And that's not even the most significant thing. For 2,000 years, billions Billions of Gentiles and Jews and Arabs can line up behind me and say my life has been profoundly changed by the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that came to Israel. And yet most people don't know any of that. They have some huge stone in the middle of their path of which they cannot get around. And it is our obligation as the church to lovingly and in gentleness, slowly, steadily, surely, move that stone over just enough to where they can, well, climb up on that highway of holiness that we looked and saw from 700 years ago or the time of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, 17, 2,700 years removed from where we are today and what he had seen and what he had described. And that is happening in our lifetimes. Palestinian Jews, right? You say Palestinian Jews, what is that? Well, Jews who live in that area or Jewish Palestinians or Christian Palestinians. I mean, it gets a little com complex, doesn't it? It's hard to understand. There are Arabs-speaking people living in the nation of Israel, and so they are in some way Israeli. They are not Jewish, but they are Israeli. And uh, we just don't know what quite to do because we live halfway around the world. And depending on what news outlet you might watch, uh, you might get more and more confused. You're moved by the atrocities that you see. You're moved by what happened to Israel and the hostages that we're taking and the brutality as we spoke about last week, the very spirit of Satan himself. We've seen it historically through Amalek and others. And yet now you have what's been described as carpet bombing. I think that's an unfair uh, view, but there is a lot of bombing of that little tiny piece of land called the Gaza Strip and there's no way you can't have compassion for mothers and children and, and, and the elderly and not just Hamas. I mean, they set it up and they knew this would be the inevitable response. 
So you just kind of throw up your hands. You don't really know how to be a follower of Jesus. You don't want to be a politico. We don't want to stand, if you remember the puppet show that we talked about last week, we don't want to be consumed down here and only watching the action on the stage. We want to begin to focus through Scripture on the, the puppeteers, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, and as it relates to the evil, and the incredible things that God and his sovereignty is doing in the Middle East. I'm going to take the next two weeks to try and describe for you Yes, you heard that right, the next two weeks. <laughs> Try to describe for you better, based on last week's foundation, and let's just repeat, God loves Arab-speaking people equally with Jewish-speaking people or Gentile people or Chechnyans or Romanians or Russians or Ukrainians or Venezuelans or even North Korean people. He loves the world. He came to die for the world. That's the foundation because God is love and the Messiah came to save the world. My, my primary point this morning will be that there is one way in which the Lord has, in my view, set up scripture to describe the salvation of the world and it cert certainly it was Jesus, but now has been transferred to his early disciples, Jewish, and they took it in and around the Aegean Sea, all the way around the Mediterranean Sea to Rome, and that's about where we finished the biblical narrative. But that, that activity has been working and going strong for 2,000 years, and we hope to be part of that right here in the Coachella Valley, the administration of light to the nations. And we have Jewish people here in the valley. We have Arab-speaking people here in the Bible. We have Hispanic community. We have, we have all kinds of ethnic groups, and our task is the same to love everybody, but to be unflinching in our willingness to say the only way because we follow Jesus is through his blood. He was the atoning sacrifice for the world. Let me pray. Lord, we just are so desperate for your help this morning. This is so complex. I feel like I have 20 hours in me that would like to come out and... Um, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do that this morning, Lord. No, I'm not going to do that, Lord. But we're going to spend the next several minutes here talking about trying to get to the bottom of, maybe even give, helping us give us peace and hope, for, well, for the headlines, for what we've been seeing over the last several weeks. Lord, give us insight, wisdom, discernment. Let us understand what is absolute, your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And some of these, well, kind of opaque prophecies, at least from our perspective, until they happen. It was the same way with your first coming. Nobody really saw it coming. Even the guys who were walking around for three and a half years on those dusty roads had no idea that it was going to be you that was going to be the lamb. They saw you as the king. So Lord, help us do this in humility and grace and loving compassion, trying to understand where we are in this total timeline of yours, the redemption of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we, we kind of finished with Jesus. Well, he got very angry. He got incredibly angry with a number of people, the religious Jews. In John chapter 8, he told them that they were of their father, the devil. Why? Because the spirit of murder was in them. 
And the spirit of murder never comes from the Father. It comes from Satan himself. You say, well, God did things through the Bible that look like he murdered people. God often uses the evil devices of nations and people to accomplish his purposes. There's no question about it. But the heart of God is salvation. Jesus means Yeshua, salvation. That's what we just saw in that first song. Jesus wants the salvation of the world. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, he wants you to be a follower of him, which will save you not only from your sins, but your eternal separation from the divine destiny that God has given you. And that's clear, and that's the gospel. But he was equally as tough on his disciples. I alluded to it, but I want to just quickly look at it, just so you can have that as a foundation. Luke chapter 9, which we had looked at prior weeks. We've been going through the gospel of Luke, and I just want to bring this to your remembrance. I would say this too, in some ways, was the same spirit that provoked Amalek as they would try to pick off those who were in opposition to them, those that, well, contain the promise. Remember, Satan comes to do two things, well, three things, kill, steal, and destroy. And what he really wants to kill, steal, and destroy is the growing kingdom that is set against his dark kingdom. It's the kingdom that the Bible simply calls the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. It's his kingdom. Therefore, those two are in direct opposition. Simple stuff, but I have to recalibrate, think about those things all the time because I can get caught up as I have, and I've spent quite a bit of time going out on the internet this last several weeks, looking at all the positions, looking at this, you know, pro-Palestinian marches and looking at the, you know, the, the, the Jews as they gather and, and all the political and, and M, you know, CNN versus Fox and this and that and different areas of the world are pro-Israel and different areas are clearly hostile to that idea. And boy, you can just get caught up and, and by the time you finish, you're just, you just, your stomach is just churning. You don't know how to respond to it. Well, that's exactly what was happening here. For them, it was the Samaritans. It was non-Jews, at least non-pure Jews, that had the off the offspring, if you will, of the Assyrian domination that came in. We're going to talk just briefly about the land of Israel and who it belongs to. That's a tough statement because it's belonged to or been under the rule of all kinds of nations all the way back from the Bronze Age. I mean, all the way back to the you know, pre-Egyptian world. Uh, people live there kind of nomadically and sporadically. When we talk about who has the right to the land, that gets very political. That gets very on the stage, the puppet stage. So they didn't like the Samaritans. So when the days, verse 51 of Luke 9, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined, Jesus, to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they didn't receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. In other words, he was a he was an observant Jew, and the Samaritans had been assimilated into these various Assyrian conquested people, and there was an intermixing, and they felt like, if you'll remember with the woman at the well, they felt like their their worship was up further north in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was a bad picture for them. It, they, they weren't on Jerusalem's side. I'll put it that way, nor were those Jews on their side. It was always the hated Samaritan. 
Now remember, it's very easy these days, especially if you do love the word and you do recognize the calling that Israel has had to be a light to the nations, it's very easy to take the side of Israel. Or maybe you're watching this morning and, and you say, no, I, I'm far away from that. I really, I, I feel my heart's broken and, and uh, the, these, these Jewish people have come in, these Israelis have come in and they've dominated the land and they've kicked out these poor Palestinians. And, you know, this narrative, they just keep going back and forth and it's a battle. Well, if you will, the, the Samaritans were, in this case, somewhat the Palestinians. That's kind of what we could, if we were to draw a modern analogy, it would be they were kind of going through and the Palestinians weren't going to let them stay there because they were headed to Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and wipe them out? Now, again, as I alluded to last week, the reason that that was so such an indelible picture in their mind is because they're prophets that they had studied since they were small. They knew well of Elijah when the king would send his 50, he would call fire down from heaven and call fire down from heaven. Or when they were at Mount Carmel and all the, the prophets of these various false idols would come and their priesthood and everything and, and fire came down from heaven and licked up the sacrifices and then they slaughtered them right up there near, near Mount Carmel. So they were used to that kind of barbarism they would call it the defense of the holy God, and they were used to that kind of project. So this seemed a perfect place if Jesus, in their mind, was going to go to Jerusalem and make himself king, of which they would be part of this wonderful messianic administration. Why don't we go ahead and get rid of some of the infidels on the way to Jerusalem? Why not? And Jesus' response was... He turned and said, that is a great idea. Let's call fire down from heaven and destroy all of these nasty opponents of my kingdom. That is not what Jesus said. He turned and he rebuked them. And he said, you have no idea what kind of spirit, notice, spirit you are of. He didn't, he didn't lay out the political. He didn't lay out the, he didn't go back to the puppet stage and start talking about everything that was happening on the puppet, puppet stage. He went straight to the puppeteers. He went straight to the spiritual realm. He, you have no idea what spirit you are of. Did the same thing with the religious Jews when they called him. When they basically were going to stone him for claiming to be God. And he said, you know, you're not of your father Abraham. You're not 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. They wanted to stone him. And he said, well, you are of your father, the devil. The devil, again, is not on the puppet stage. The devil is one of the puppeteers. And that's what you are enslaved to. You are a slave of Satan unless Jesus has cut your strings through the new birth, period. Very black and white. Well, we're all just good people here. Let's not get too specific here, Jeff. I mean, this is no, Jesus' words, not mine. He says, you don't know what kind of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village, probably having no idea what really happened until later. And then they would recount these stories and go, oh, Jeremiah, some 600 years before the time of Jesus, had seen a new covenant, a new way to do life, 
between God and man, a new way. It's the new birth. All the prophets saw it. Ezekiel said they're going to get a new heart and a new spirit. You need a new spirit to be in the spirit of Jesus in, every, in any and every situation, even though you may be politically inflamed. It is very hard not to get inflamed by what you see the puppets doing on the puppet stage. It's very hard not to. But we must be cautious. Now again, as I said last week, governments have a responsibility distinctively different from what our responsibility is. Okay, so governments have, they bear, they don't, the Bible says they don't bear the sword for nothing. The governments that got, Daniel 2.21, God raises up leaders and he deposes them. God uses evil, brutal dictators as well as men who would, or women who would considered more godly. I would prefer to live with ruler, with governance that was more on the godly side. There's no question. But God equally uses both for his ultimate ends. But that's just puppet show stuff. That's what you see going on the stage. We are not going to get called, caught up into that. So here's the second thing I want to look at. We see that God wants not the spirit of murder to go, but yet on the same hand, he immediately will very very quickly, we get to Matthew 23, have to change gospels, but he will talk about a time where murder and mayhem will reign. And he's going to give us some input into the second part of this. Okay, so last week, in summation of last week, Satan wanted to destroy Israel. Why? So that the seed promised to Abraham in Abraham chapter 12, who would be a blessing to whom? All the nations would not come. We see that all the way through Israel's history, them trying to be wiped out from the spirit of Amalek, as we looked at, all the way up to right the time of Jesus' birth and King Herod having slaughtered all male young men under the age of two, and they had to, you know, run down and be in Egypt for a period of time. That spirit still reigns, satanic activity, trying to get the seed never to prosper or even be able to be birthed into the world because he knows that the seed and the propagation of the seed into the world will be Satan's ultimate demise. Remember that. That's why I'm involved. We are involved, many of you involved with your gifts, your talent, your time, your treasure in advancing the agenda of the seed, and the seed was Jesus. Here's now, again, where the church divides because some, and sometimes they do it under dispensational theology versus covenant theology versus all these different kinds of reform things, and and it gets very convoluted, very complex, and some would say, it's, no, it's very simple. It's, it's very easy. It's, very, it's not easy. It's complex. And some would say, well, no, that Israel is no different than any other people. And that would be true if their calling was finished. And here's the one point I want you to walk away with today. Israel, your calling is not over, but your calling will be swept up in the person of Jesus, your long-awaited Messiah, period. And that is why anti-Semitism still reigns in the earth, because 
God's not finished with using Israel as a light to the nations. And that's what I want to try to show you in a few places. That governs my, my mind much more than whether or not this is, and if you've read or I've, people send me videos all the time, and I'm not against it, and I'm not mocking my fellow theologians and pastors, and, and th- is this Ezekiel 38 and 39, and Gog and Magog? Is this, you know, Russia, which was north of Israel, and there, there's this battle that's, that Ezekiel is foreseeing, and uh, Iran is probably this partner, and now we do see some activity between Iran and Russia, and they are kind of forming some alliances, and it does look like it's kind of towards Israel, and, uh, but it's still very speculative. It's very speculative, and I think if you go back into Zechariah 12 and 13 and 14, there's some things that simply are not in place yet for that battle to even happen, which is that all the nations turn against Israel. I don't even think we're close. We may be a generation away, but I mean, Biden, at least Biden stepped up and supported Israel this last, you know, couple of weeks and things like that. And we sent the Sixth Fleet to kind of provoke, to to prevent uh, Iran from entering in and from the north through Hezbollah or supporting Hamas already more than they are, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I'm going to tell you why I think we're not close. And I'll tell you that straight up. I do not think it's imminent. Some people say, you have to teach imminency now, but Israel's become a nation again because Jesus could come back at any time. Of course, he could come back at any time. From the way I read it, it doesn't put me in a position of anything other than, well, I don't need to live in imminency. I live in urgency all the time. I tell you why I live in urgency. I'm getting old. I don't have that many years left. I see young people here today. I mean, you got, you got decades in front. I'd love to see you, you know, come in and be discipled and be a, be a player in the kingdom of heaven. And you've got decades in front of you. I live in urgency because I think there is a role that we play as it relates to Israel and the Middle East and by extension then the Arab communities you know, believing into Jesus, and I think there's some things we can do, and I am right now. In December, I'll be at a, at a board meeting for one for Israel, Jews and Arabs loving Jesus, and yeah, yes, there are many things we can do. Of course, I live in urgency, but I don't need someone's prophetic timeline to persuade me to live in imminency when I already live in plenty of urgency. If you need help, if you're one of those people who just wants to wait around until things look really bleak and then you say, well, maybe I'll start, you know, doing something for God. Well, your heart's already young and checked. It's a heart issue. It's, it's, not a, it's not a theological prophetic timeline issue. Are you with me? So what are those things? I'm going to take you to four quick places and show you why I believe that there is such radical anti-Semitism in the world because I believe that everything hinges on the spiritual. And by spiritual, I don't just mean religious. I mean spiritual in Christ, the belief in Jesus in the Middle East. And I think it starts with Israel and it expands out across the Middle East. And I think that's why a lot of the stuff we see on the ground is occurring to try to stop Israel from stepping into its prophetic destiny to have a global impact 
and a regional impact as well. I showed you this last week. You could sense that. Here, Jews and Arabs singing, worshiping, being together. It is, as I've said before, the only hope. The praying for the peace of Jerusalem is to pray that Jesus is manifest in the minds of Jews and Arabs all over the Middle East. And it's moved primarily by Jews and Arabs that already love Jesus in the Middle East. Please get that. Please get that. I want to take you to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. You say, alone, eh, maybe that could mean that. I'm not sure. But together with these few places, and again, my point this week is to really provoke you into thinking, oh, every time I see all this hostility in the Middle East, whether, and again, started in Tunisia, the Arab Spring, ISIS, everything we've gone through as a nation and a world over the last, you know, decade plus now has been extraordinary. Why is this happening? I think it's upheaval of the nations so that Jesus can become the light in that area that then will spring forth into the rest of the world. Luke chapter 3, verse 17. This is the sermons being preached here. Peter gets up and he says, Now, brethren, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his Jewish, his Jewish nation people, some religious, maybe some irreligious. He says, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. How did they act in ignorance? They killed the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He says it straight up. He says, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, not a few of them, all the prophets, the thing Isaiah was seeing about this highway and a light to the nations and my, my suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 and the lamb led to slaughter and sprinkling the nations and all, all that stuff, all the prophets saw it, all of them that his Christ would suffer, well, guess what? That has now been fulfilled. The slaughtering of the lamb is over. Next step, oh, you brothers of mine, you Jewish men and women that I love, that we, I am, we are part of the same nation here. But here's the response. Do the best you can. Create a religion where you do good works in the community. No, he says, then repent and return. Why? Well, that's the new birth. He says, I want you to do what we've all done. He could turn around and see Matthew and the other disciples and Mary Magdalene and the women that were following and, and all these Jews who had believed and now seen a resurrected Jesus. Repent and return. Why? So that your sins may be wiped away in order that, okay, what happens when their sins wipe away? In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Okay, that's the salvation experience. That happened to me. But there's something contingent upon them doing it. It's more. Their repentance brings refreshing, but it brings also something else. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things. 
about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Now he's saying, you, you guys know, you know who Moses is. I have Jewish friends today and, I, and I've sat with them and they are, have become so secular and so disenfranchised from any of their Jewish heritage that they don't know the difference. I have sat with Jewish men and I'm, this is not, and this is a, this is minority, it's, a, it's an anecdotal. They did not know the difference between Moses and Abraham. Of course, Gentiles, many of them don't either. They couldn't possibly put who these are. He says, Moses, the Lord, he said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. To him, you will give heed in everything that he says to you. That's his sermon. His sermon was, look what Moses, God told Moses. He says, and it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. He made, he made Moses, God speaking through Moses, some 12 to 1500 years before this sermon, one of these early, early sermons right after Pentecost, he said, look, he, it, he, yes, do this. Believe into that prophet that God was speaking to Moses through so that what? <coughs> you won't be destroyed. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have announced these days, it is you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant of God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he's speaking to the Jews and he says, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now, what I find fascinating in that is it seems to be, and I would call this contingency number one for Jesus to come back. Repent, return, so that your sins may be wiped away <coughs> in order that at times of refreshing may come. <coughs> Excuse me. And that he may send Jesus. Ah, times of refreshing. They have come in my life. <coughs> Pardon me. So what? It sounds like to me that until they repent and return, he won't send Jesus back. Jesus has already ascended now. You do realize that here. It seems like one of the very first messages is that I'm going to send him back, but you need to repent and return first. How many of them? Well, we don't know that yet. <coughs> going to have to edit a lot here, guys. Sorry about that. Okay. Contingency number two. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 and forward. Is there a contingency? Yes, I think so. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem. Mm. You can imagine what's going on in his spirit. He said it himself, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I didn't come for the Gentiles to start a new religion and get guys with pointy hats that have nothing to do with the Jews and maybe even turn around and persecute the Jews. You think that was on Jesus' agenda? What a travesty. 
And yet that's Satan's activity. Satan's worked through Christendom. Satan's worked through Judaism. Satan's worked through Muslims. Satan's worked through... Satan will get it. Satan loves religion. Loves it. That's why we must be careful and cling to the simple teachings and the spirit of the new covenant through Jesus. Be cautious. Here's what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, (coughs) Jerusalem, who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to, well, gather you as a child and, and your children together. Well, the way a hen gathers her chicks. Just puts them under her wings. And she just wouldn't have it. You were just completely unwilling. Behold, your house, well, it's being left to you desolate. <clears throat> and it would be. Exactly as Jesus had said. About 40 years later, roughly, Titus would roll on. They were now under the hands of the Romans' occupiers. And they would roll in some 30, 40, 35 to 40 years later, and they would, these recall the era, the time of Jewish and Roman wars, starting in 70 and on all the way, Hadrian in 130 AD. And, and they did. They did exactly as Jesus said. They didn't leave one stone left upon another. You should be fascinated by that. It's an extraordinary fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I say to you from now on, you will not see me. You won't even see me anymore, Jerusalem, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Something has to happen before they're going to see Jesus again. As a nation, because he's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. As a nation, something's got to happen in their heart as a contingency before he comes back. Now, why did he say, blessed is he comes in the name of the Lord? I've done a teaching on this. Some of you have heard it. They were quoting Psalm 118 when Jesus came in, riding on the back of the Zacharias prophesied donkey, right down in towards the valley of Kidron, up from Bethany, Bethphage, came right down just as they had said, and they welcomed him as a king. And Zechariah had seen that, you know, 500 years before, 600 years before the time of Jesus. And he'd seen this king coming, mounted on a donkey. And they, Israel welcomed him as the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's what we call Palm Sunday. They threw palms down. They were, they were loving him and blessing him. Just a few days later, that same crowd would be saying, crucify him, crucify him. Because he didn't, play out on the puppet stage as they had anticipated. Well, clearly we got the wrong guy. Pretty fickle crowd. But Jesus says, he had already prophesied it. There's no way you're going to, you will not see my face again until you say, until you give me that same greeting to come back as king, but this time I don't come back on a donkey. This time I come back and every knee bows. And every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Lord. Be the most terrifying day in all of the entirety of the cosmos. And I'm talking about where black holes implode and supernovas and 
and all the crazy, wild stuff that happens in the cosmos. And there will never be a more terrifying day. But something's happened in their heart if they're blessing him back as king. Unless, and this is where, and I will take my opinion, and I pretty, feel, feel, feel pretty strongly about it, there is a strain of dispensational thought, and you don't have to worry about what all those words mean, but that believe that somehow the Jews have a second chance opportunity, that the church is raptured, and then somehow they have a second chance opportunity. And I just don't think that's in the spirit, and the, and the Jews, most of the Jewish people that I know who are involved, Jews celebrating, said, look, we we come to the cross the same way you do, and it's called dual covenant theology, and I just don't think it's biblical. I think it would have broken Paul's heart to see that emerge because Paul always first went into the synagogue, and then he went straight into the streets. Your Jewish friends, or if you're watching, that you come to Jesus just like every Gentile does, on your knees before the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. There aren't a multiplicity of ways. Jesus said it was simple. It's through me. I think something has happened that's going to usher in. And then that's where I'm going to go into, this will be the last part of this morning. I'm going to go into Romans 11 now. And, I, and, and again, if you've been with me to Israel, I have taught on this. But I will tell you, I think this is, I don't know how, and again, it's hard to interpret, especially if you hold to more of what's called covenantal theology, that there's kind of a time for Israel and the time for the nations and Israel's time closed and now pretty much everything that re relates to Israel, maybe even the Ezekiel Wars, should be spiritualized or allegorized or whatever. And it's very difficult to see. And again, I've told you about prophecy. I said, I, I, I want to understand all the prophecies, but then I want to understand, and I know that I'm probably not going to understand most of them until after they've occurred, as it was in his first coming. So, Because for 100 years, people say, this is that. Hitler's the Antichrist. That's the Antichrist. This is the beginning of the tribulation. These things, a third of the population. I just, you know, we've been talking about this for 100 years, and nobody's gotten it right, but the books keep selling. And I'm just saying there is something deeper here, and it keeps us on task. Now, I'm not criticizing you if you're into that and you, and you really want to study the Scriptures. Keep studying the Scriptures by all means. But be cautious about overlooking what's really happening here. And what's really happening here is that it, this gospel started with the Jewish conduit and it went all the way around the world. And it's coming back and there's coming a place where all of Israel is going to be saved. And then Jesus comes back. And that's how I read the Scriptures. And I'm going to show you that right now in Romans chapter 11. You hanging in there? We need a seventh inning stretch. Oh, I'm so um, I have an hour and a half, I have an hour and forty five minutes left. No, I don't. Please just get this. I'm going to read some of this. Don't don't freak out. I mean, just I, I want you to understand this Middle East. I'm going to talk about Romans 11, but this really impacted me this week. We. It's so hard to see all this so clearly. You know what I mean? It's challenging especially when you start talking about biblical prophecy. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says in his book, Run with, a, Run with the Horses. He said, every once in a while, when I get tired of living by faith. Anybody ever get tired of living by faith? You just want to start, I want some stuff to start lining up. So I, my faith, I want, it, I want to see it for a while. I'm tired of living in a world that I don't see. 
He said, every, every once in a while, we get tired of living by faith. He says, here's what he would do. He says, I'd drive about 25 miles southwest to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. And I'd watch the Orioles play baseball. For a couple of hours, I'm in a world that is defined by, well, exactly measured lines and precise geometric patterns. Every motion on the playing field is graceful and poised. <clears throat> Sloppy behavior, it's not tolerated. Complex physical feats are carried out with immense skill. Errors, well, they're instantly detected and their consequences immediately experienced. Rule infractions are punished directly. Unruly conduct is banished. The person who refuses to play by the rules is ejected. Outstanding performance is recognized and applauded on the spot. While the game is being played, people of widely divergent temperaments, moral values, religious commitments, cultural backgrounds, uh, they agree on a goal and the means for pursuing it. And, well, when the game's over, everyone knows who won and, well, who lost. It's a world from which all uncertainty is banished, a world that everything is clear and obvious. Afterward, the entire experience is summarized in the starkly unambiguous vocabulary of numbers. Exact to the third decimal point. The world to which I return, and he was a pastor of a small church in Bel Air, Maryland, and also had some ministry that was worldwide, kind of he says, the world to which I return when the game is over contains all the elements that were visible in the stadium, elegance and sloppiness, grace and unruliness, victory and defeat, diversity and unity, reward and punishment, boundary and risk, indolence and excellence, but with a significant difference. Instead of being sharply distinguished, they are hopelessly muddled. Does it ever feel like that, that your world or this Middle East or post 9-11 world or all the things going on and is America going to be there in the prophetic literature or is it not going to be there? Are we going to go the way of the Romans or have we gone down such a road that we are so ensconced with the capitalistic world view that all it is about money and step on everybody and or are we going to become a socialist nation, or maybe even revert back to communism, will we become like the Romans? Are we in the process of decay? It all seems so muddled. What is going on at any particular time is almost never exactly clear. None of the lines are precise. The boundaries are not clear. Goals are not agreed on. Means are in constant dispute. When I leave the world of the brightly lit geometric patterns, I pick my way through ink blots, trying to discern the significance of the shapes with all the help from Rorschach and that I can get, the guy that came up with all the ink blot stuff. My digital wristwatch, for all its technological accuracy, never tells me whether I am at the beginning or in the middle or near the end of an experience. At the end of the day, or the week, or the year, there is no agreement on who has won, 
and who has lost. And I'll tell you, that's what the Middle East feels like right now to me. Oh, no, Jeff. And, I, and I, I've listened to hours of it. I've, I, I've taught it. I, under, I, I understand the worlds. And I No, this is exactly what this means. And this is when. And once that started, this, this alliance will happen. And then that. And then, you know, it's the World War III and all this. And then Jesus is going to be coming back and all that kind of stuff. And I'm saying, oh, wait a minute. Why is Israel? Why is Israel? They're not ready for a, a Palm Sunday again for Jesus to come back. Israel hasn't come to know the Lord yet and then, and then been the catalyst to world revival, and I believe they will be. There's no Isaiah 19, Highway of Holiness, from Egypt to Assyria and the Levant, down all the way, Southern Levant, all the way up through. I mean, when, when could you have said this? Do you know who's, who's owned the land of Israel through the years? Do you, do you know anything about the true history of Israel? Most people don't. I mean, if you go back to the Bronze Age, it was the Canaanites, and even before that, Hiscos, different people. Then you got into the early Iron Age, and there were some vassal little tribals out there because Egypt was rising, and they would have some little people out there kind of as heads of places, but there was no central government at all in that area. And, of course, there's all kinds of scholarly debate. There was until the Merneptah-Steli, which they found in Thebes, which is in Egypt, which names Israel by name, and this dates back to more than 1,200 years before the time of Jesus, and said that Israel had been defeated. That's a very important thing for you archaeologists, the Merneptah Steli or Steel or Stella. It's pronounced all three different ways. And here's this king, Merneptah, and he's saying, you know, here, here's the Chronicles, Israel. Now, they wouldn't have been... Clearly, that was hundreds of years before Saul or David. It would have probably been during the time of the judges, and they were little kind of tribes running around trying to, you know, self-rule and take the land that God had given them and all that kind of thing. And so you had that that moment in, in that, and then finally Israel emerges, and we have, of course, Judah and Israel together. We have that age of who's really in the land, and that was the largest under Saul and David and Solomon. That was the largest amount of land, even some Transjordan and all this and a lot of that northern part. And they ruled it, but then, you know, they failed. Israel failed, so the ten lost tribes lost their land to the Assyrians, and that's what became eventually the Samaritans, some Jews that stayed up there, and then some who were shipped in to try to assimilate them into Assyria. And then unfortunately, they continued to rebel, Israel rebelled. Now Judah, really Judah and Benjamin, began to continue to rebel and live after their idols and go after their stuff. And so God began to say, well, I'm going to bring in my servant. This is important, servant Babylon. And they brought their servant Babylon in, a wicked. That, see, when I, when, I, when I say that God is the one, he uses wicked men and wicked women to accomplish his purposes. For what? The greater global restoration of people before Jesus comes back. That's what gets me up. That's why I'm urgent. We're not done yet. There, are there any, is there anybody in the Coachella Valley that doesn't yet know Jesus? If there is, then we should have an urgency about us. Or we can just come in here and play church. Who wants to do that? Don't raise your hand. 
So then the Babylonians came in, and now there wasn't even that. So now you have the Babylonian kind of overlords. And they had Zedekiah and Gedaliah and governors and different things. But eventually it all went down. But then just as God had prophesied through Isaiah, the Persians under King Cyrus began to allow some of the Jews to come back, and that's the first regathering of sorts, but it was small. They erected the temple again, and the ones that had seen Solomon's temple, they wept over the foundations because it would look like nothing compared to what they had seen in their days, some of the older men. So the Babylonians cease, the Persians cease. Well, eventually, then you have the Hellenistic period, Greeks, the Greeks came in, and eventually Alexander dies at around 30 years old, and then it divides, and you have the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and different things, and they set up something, and eventually here comes Rome, the Pax Romana. And there's where we get the language of the Bible in the New Testament, the time of Jesus. The Romans are occupiers. They control the land. The coming, the going, the taxation, the people. Israel has no independence. They have no self-governance. And so then you eventually get the Jewish and Arab, uh, the Jewish and Roman wars. And that leads eventually to the collapse of Rome and the Byzantines. And then you get the early Muslim period. And then you get the, the Mongols and the Crusaders even. Here come the Christians. Let's kill some Jews. In the spirit of Christendom. No, in the spirit of your father, the devil, Jesus would say to all those marching with crosses. What a tragedy. And so you have this ever, and then the Mamluks, and eventually the Ottoman. The Ottoman Turks come in. And until World War I, they, well, they find themselves on the wrong side of that, and they end up losing that kind of sovereignty, <clears throat> well, believe it or not, to the UK, to the Brits. And now we have the British mandate. But, and here's the point, and Jews were being obliterated and slaughtered and chased out of every single place they found themselves all over the world. Half the Jews lived during the time, lived in Russia. And through the pogroms and all that, they were slaughtered. But as early as the late 1800s, and I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying this is what has happened on the puppet stage. But what happened is exactly this. As that's unfolding, Russians are saying we've got to get back to what would then Palestine. And the reason it was called Palestine and always has been is it's a der derivation from Philistines. Because when Hadrian finally came in some 60 years after the first Jewish revolt or the primary one that we look at in 130, he said, we're going to salt this place. Nobody's going to live here anymore. And we're going to call it Palestine, which was a derivation from Philistines because they know that that would take the salt and rub it into these nasty Jews even more. We'll call it Basically, Philistine land became Palestine. For all those years, even through all the, the Turks and the, the, all the, every different overlord during those times, there were some Christians, there were some Arabs, there was a smattering of Jews. As early as the late 1800s, 35,000 Jews made their way back to Palestine, way before they ever got any kind of authority. The Balfour Declaration of 1917 made it ab 
possible by there was a growing sentiment after World War I, give the land some, give the Jewish people some land to live on. Nobody wants them. They took the, most Jews took the side of Germany in World War I because of Russia and his anti-Semitic and the pogroms that were going on in Russia. So they felt like they had a safe place in Germany. If you know anything about history, that didn't work so well during World War II. And strangely enough, Stalin would sign with Truman to have the ability to support Israel because all of a sudden Russia was now on the side and against in World War II uh, with the Allied powers. And Israel became a nation against all odds. It's like God was hunting for them and fishing for them and they would pull them out of every crag of every rock, every nation they went, they couldn't find. And you don't think the prophets saw that coming? I'm not even going to read Romans 11. We're going to pick that up next week. But I tell you what I will take you to. That's not going to be up here, but I just, I want you, I want us to understand this. I, I, if you have a historical understanding, you won't just be moved around by just puppets on a stage. God is doing extraordinary things and he is fulfilling his word to the exact jot and tittle, everything. It often looks different than our prophecy people think. He's brought the people back literally to live in their land. Isaiah 11, 11 says, and I'm going to bring them back a second time. Not just after the Babylonian captivity. I'm going to bring them back a second time. They say, well, you're making political statements. No, I'm making biblical statements. And there's a purpose for it. Well, you hate Arabs and, and love Jewish people. That's a lie. I love Jewish people. I love Arab people. And in Christ... I can already taste it today. It's beautiful. And I experience it. Jeremiah chapter 16 will close. I promised myself I wouldn't get this riled up, but here I go. Even Jeremiah, as he was seeing the, the nation implode, and he just hung in there and hung in there and hung in there, and hung in there. What a faithful prophet he was. Even to, to the point of living in a cistern. But he wouldn't give up. When I think about Jeremiah. I think about, you know, I complain because of this. Or I complain because of that. And I'm just like, it, it is my biblical shut up, Jeff. When I read the prophet Jeremiah. Here's what Jeremiah had seen. Someone says, oh, this is the Babylonian captivity. This is clearly cannot be the post-Babylonian captivity. Cannot be. It wasn't broad enough, it wasn't wide enough, and it wasn't lasting. Verse 14, Jeremiah 16. Therefore, behold, days are coming. Folks, allow me to announce to you this prophecy, as Jesus said in his day when he stood up to read in the Nez he said, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. For many of you who have lived long enough, this has been filled in your, fulfilled in your living. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Nobody's talking about that anymore. But they're going to be talking about this. As the Lord lives and brought up the sons of Israel 
from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am going to send. How's he going to get them there? I'm going to send for many fishermen, but this isn't the good kind like Jesus to be fishers of men. He says, declares the Lord, and they're, they're going to fish for them, and afterwards I will send for hunters. And they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill, hill and from the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Most of the Jewish people still... The living today, they're very secular. They're not, any, they're not a big distinction. Oh, they're a chosen people. But there are many godless and not even God-believing Jews who live on the planet. We would just say secular. And I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land and they have killed my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and their abominations. Oh, Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of distress... Now notice the shift. To thee, the nations will come. From the ends of the earth and our fathers who inherited nothing but falsehood, futility, and things are of no profit. Can man make gods for himself and yet they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might and they shall know that my name is the Lord. What I read, when I read the prophets 700 times in the, in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, there are either direct quotes, and I could take you through many, or, or allusions to, I'm going to regather you again, I'm going to regather you again, and I'm going to regather you again. And it's going to be through persecution, and I'm going to drag you out of these other nations where you feel safe. They felt safe in Russia and then the pogroms. So they felt safer in Germany. Didn't feel so safe in Germany in World War II. Many in diaspora, the vast majority of those in diaspora in the United States, I hear it and read it every single day. Jewish men and women are feeling less safe than they've ever felt here in the United States. There's like a homing device. Something's going on. God is drawing them back. But then notice, every time he said he's going to draw them back, Ezekiel, I'm going to, for my holy name, I'm going to draw you back to your own land. And then I'm going to put a new heart in you and I'm going to give you a new spirit. And so when we see our friends in Israel and they, they're Jews and Arabs and they're singing those songs, they say, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be? Well, let's be part of it. Let's be Let's give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Let's, let's care about Jewish and Arab believers. And, and again, the reason that the challenge is is because the satanic activity that's happened in some of these terrorist groups and then the, the responses through governments and whether they be Israeli or American or, or Iran or whatever, all these geopolitical powers. I don't know what's going to happen. I can speculate. But what I do know is that they're not going to lose it again. It's not. And then I'll regather them a third time. I don't find that in Scripture. I find I'm going to regather them a second time. And then I'm going to do this. 
And then, as we'll see next week, the impact of Jewish men and women, and then by extension, as it extends on into the Middle East, the impact on the globe is profound. I'm hopeful. I'm not a post-millennialist, if you know what that means necessarily, but I do believe our greatest days are ahead of us in the church. When I see Jewish men and women like our friends and like I interviewed last week and I'm on, you know, when I pray with these people, you know, Dr. Sareff and we try to get on a prayer call every, the three of us and Dr. Seth Postel every, you know, on Thursdays and I'm just like, this is, there is no ethnic. And that's what Paul says, that in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile or male or female or slave or free. All those boundaries tend to come down. I don't think of it like that anymore. I think of, there's a, there's a Jewish guy, there's an Israeli with Jesus. There's an Arab Israeli or an Arab with Jesus and, and, and it just, Jesus dominates. Well, that's what heaven's gonna look like. So in closing this morning as we worship, thank you for being tolerant of your pastor to get up here and get all rambunctious on you. But I hope this gets you excited about the scripture. I want, I want, you should be reading it this week. You should be thinking about these things. Don't get caught up into this, the spirit of Palm Springs. It's a powerful spirit, isn't it? I mean, just, just suck you right in. The spirit, of, the spirit of Palm Springs is like, what did I do the last month? I don't even have any idea. I've been here for a month, and I don't even know what I did. Say, I went out to eat a few times. I, uh, well, anyway. Let's be a people of the king. But I, my hearts do go out. I, I cannot imagine, and this is not, you know, support or against, and we don't love the Palestinians and this and that. Hamas is satanic. Hezbollah is satanic. It's clear. And from my view, Israel has their land back. It's not owned by the Ottomans. And they're going to keep it, but it's with a purpose. It's not just a geopolitical statement. And I, and I think if you really care about the Palestinians, you'll want to see Israelis fall in love with Jesus because that's going to usher in a peace that, well, be, will be profound. But we're just going to close in this. And I, I don't, it's going to be a little tear-jerker. There's a beautiful song. We've done it, one for Israel. And then I just want you to see the face of our enemy. And I want you to pray for these people. Will you pray for these people?